Now, one thing I, I do want to point out before we get started tonight, um, as as you're watching the band meet tonight, one of the really cool things, I just want to encourage you to kind of think about this. One of the really cool things is that right here we have somebody who's been singing in this band since seventh grade, is now a senior in high school, and then over here we have somebody who was singing for the very first time on stage tonight. And so if you're somebody who's kind of asking the question, how do I get involved in serving more? How do I take that next step? Um, my encouragement to you is this. Um, start praying now about what doors God may open for you to step through when it comes to serving Him in a greater way. Because uh, regardless of where you're at, what, what grade, what age, anything like that, God does have something for you. And so I was really cool as I was out there worshiping to get to see just kind of the dynamic of somebody who has invested years into this and then somebody who is beginning that investment as well. So I just want to challenge you to think about that. So, right now we are entering into week two of a series called One Month to Live. One Month to Live. And we're asking the question, how would you live life? How would you, how would you live life if you knew? If you knew for a fact that you only had 30 days left to live. And quite simply, we all know intuitively that if we knew, if we really knew that we only had one month to live, we use our time more wisely. Because any time we have a limited resource, and we know that that resource is limited, we use more discretion with how we use it, like with money. So if you've got $20 to spend on school lunch for the duration of an entire week, it only takes like once or twice of you running out of money on Wednesday because you bought ice cream and chips and stuff like that, and then going hungry on Thursday and Friday for you to realize, oh man, I need to like be a little bit more conservative with how I spend this money and make this money last all the way through the week. When I was in high school, I worked at a job at Schlotsky's. I made sandwiches and washed dishes uh, for three years of high school. And so one of the things that made me start thinking about was not stuff I would buy in terms of dollars, but stuff I would buy in terms of how many hours I would have to work to earn the money to buy that thing. And so like when video games would come out, they'd come out at $60. Like I knew it's gonna take me at least 10 hours of work working with ovens and washing onion dishes and things like that. Ten hours of work to pay for that video game. And so I started counting the cost a little bit more when it came to how I spent my money. Now, some of you are, like, very talented people. And if you're in band, you're required, like, you kind of get this thing. Like, you have a limited amount of talent to use. And so when you're in the middle of, like, all state or all region, all district trials and all, and you're really, really focused on trying to make all state, really, really focused on trying to make all district, you're going to spend your practice time focused on that kind of music so you can churn it out. You're not going to learn the Pokemon Go theme song. You're not going to start spending all your practice room time singing the songs by Taylor Swift. You're actually going to focus in on what's most important. Now, for me in high school, I wanted to be a, a, a switch hitter in baseball. I grew up playing baseball left-handed, um, not, not very strong of a hitter, but I wanted to be able to hit the ball from either side of the plate. And so I started practicing on how to hit left-handed, which I was, and then right-handed, which I wasn't. And it didn't take me long to figure out that I didn't have enough talent to go around to hit left-handed and right-handed. So when my talent ran out, I said, you know what? I'm good enough at hitting left-handed, and I'm terrible at hitting right-handed. So I had limited talent that I had to choose. And when we have limits on that, we tend to choose a little bit more wisely. And then I think the one that we bump up against the most often is limited time. If you're walking from classes in between whatever, and you have seven minutes or six minutes to get to class, you make these decisions whether you know it or not, how to spend your limited time. Some of you choose to keep talking with that friend and show up late to class. 
Others of you choose to go to buy the bathroom because you know you can't make it another 50 minutes if you don't. Others of you choose to go buy a drink and then still some others, and like these are like the like best students in the room, like you actually choose to walk to your locker and get the appropriate book for class. Now, we get this. Like we know, and, and maybe we've never put it into words, but we know when a resource is limited, we use it more wisely. But the other thing that we need to think about is the way we use limited resources actually indicates the inner workings of our heart. The way we use our limited resources shows the depths of our heart. And so what we spend our time, our talent, our money on reveals what is most important to us. So last week, Brett started off the series One Month to Live by challenging us to think about the most important thing. And the most important thing we can strive for. The most important thing that we can work for, if we know that time is limited, is to make sure that the people we love, the people we care about, the people that God has placed in our path, know how to have a relationship with Jesus. Christians as people, if we realize how short time is, should be people who are more motivated to go share the good news of Jesus than anybody else. So he challenged us to make a list, pray, and look for opportunities to share, and then actually go share the gospel. And so some of you actually made a list of people who needed to know about Jesus. And some of you have spent this week praying for those people and still others have looked for opportunities. And I hope and I pray that some of you had the opportunity to share the gospel. Sharing not only with actions, but with words. What it means to love Jesus. Now one of the cool things about leadership track that existed the last time I was here, and I'm sure is still part of today, is to have five people that at all times you're praying. Five people that you know don't have a relationship with Jesus. Five people that you want the opportunity to share Jesus with. And I, I remember six years ago, seven years ago, having the opportunity in the middle of a mentor meeting when my mentee walked in and, and got to cross off not one but two of his friends that he'd been praying for almost a year. That both of them found a relationship with Jesus. There's nothing more exciting than there's nothing more invigorating, nothing more encouraging than seeing somebody you love come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we jump into week two, as we jump into week two of one month to live, we're going to start a little bit differently. And this is going to seem a little bit weird to you, but we're going to start by joining in and saying the Lord's Prayer together. Okay, so we're actually all going to say this out loud together. And the reason we're going to do this is two reasons. Number one, I don't think there's anything more unifying in the church, not locally, but globally, and through all time in the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that's not only said on the, on the side of football fields as teams round up together before practice or after games. This is a prayer that's said in family worship as moms and dads are leading prayers with their kids. This is a prayer that's said in every language, said in every church. It's said from the beginning of the church. And so what I want you to do right now is read or pray out loud the Lord's Prayer with you. Are we ready? Yeah? Like nod your head? Okay? Okay, wonderful. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, we'll, we'll stop there. 
Well, we'll stop there. So different translations are going to cut off there and say, For thine is the kingdom of the Lord, power forever and ever and ever. Um, a little bit of difference there. But we're going to stop right there. Now, we, we pray that Lord's Prayer together for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's a prayer that I've prayed, and I just wanted to pray that with you. And number two, though, I wanted to point out something that's very unique in this prayer. So Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he, he prays this model prayer in front of his disciples, teaching them how to pray. But one of the things I want to point out is that in the midst of all this, in the midst of all the things about God, there's actually one action that believers are supposed to take in this prayer. If you go through it and you read this, everything's about God, everything's about what God does, and there's one little part in the prayer that actually demands something of us. It says, forgive us our debts, and then it goes on, as we have also forgiven our debtors. All the other parts of God's action. Talking about the holiness of God. May your name be holy. May your kingdom come. Give us this day. Forgive us. Lead us not. Deliver us. But when, when he's starting to wrap his prayer, he says this little phrase in there, as we have forgiven. And so right after Jesus prays this prayer, he's got all of his disciples together. It's his captive audience. He's just prayed this prayer. And so he decides to explain the prayer. But rather than going line by line through the prayer, he focuses on one single point of the prayer to explain. It's very interesting. He just laid out a model prayer, and instead of explaining all of it, he looks at one point and explains it. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you, give, if you forgive other their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And he points this out, and he explains to his disciples, he explains to people that would read this thousands of years later, there's a sense in which your forgiveness from God is actually tied up with our willingness to forgive others. This is an incredibly sobering dynamic. It's incredibly sobering to think that our forgiveness is somehow wrapped up in our willingness to forgive others. Others. And what we have to understand is that God places such a high value on relationships. God places such a high value on forgiveness in our relationships that he holds us to a very high standard when it comes to maintaining those relationships. When humanity was created in perfection, you have the beginning with Adam and Eve. Human beings were created to live in perfect relationship, not only with God, but with one another. And so in the fallen world we live in, God has given us a way. God's given us a way in which broken relationships can be mended. So when relationships are broken, as the Lord, Lord's Prayer indicates, but as the totality of Scripture indicates, when relationships are broken, forgiveness is what restores them. This right here is the essence of the gospel. When, when we talk about, hey, go share Jesus with people, what we're really saying is you need to tell people that the relationship between God and them can be mended by the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness restoring relationships is the essence of the gospel. I will take it even a step further. Like the church is a representation of heaven here on earth. And so, so this is the ideal place. Like sitting in Kauai, sitting at FBG, like this is the ideal place in which, in which forgiveness should happen most readily. Because all the people in here who sit here and call themselves Christians, you sit under the same banner of Christ saying, Christ forgave us, we will forgive others. And so there should be no other place on earth in which relationships are healthier, relationships are stronger, or forgiveness is given out at a higher rate. 
And I want to think real quick about FBG. First Baptist Georgetown. The vision of this church is loving God, loving people, and helping others do the same. Now this is, this is incredibly relational language. Loving God, loving others, helping others do the same. You cannot love God if your relationship is broken with them due to unforgiveness. You can't love people if your relationship with them is broken due to unforgiveness. And you certainly can't help people. You cannot help people with which you have broken relationships due to unforgiveness. So when relationships are broken, forgiveness is what restores them. This is the hard part. We don't like dealing in forgiveness. We don't like to be wrong, and we don't like to be wrong. If you talk to any adult, this will be very interesting. If you want to do a, a, a social experiment that's going to get you some awkward looks and probably in trouble, you can do this. Um, if you talk to adults around the holiday season and you hear them discuss things about getting together with families, you know you're going to hear a whole lot of times things about tension or angst or frustration. And so at some point, at some point, there was an in-law, there was a mom, there was a dad, there was a brother or sister, there was a cousin. There was somebody that they're about to see that they've been mad at for years. And like they're getting themselves worked up. It's like, oh man, we've got to go over there again, and she's going to be there. And I remember that last time we were over there 22 years ago when we spoke, like she did. Like, so if you want a real fun social experiment, like go into that, and then just like, like egg them on a little bit. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's awful, isn't it? Awful, yeah, yeah. And then just kind of ask the question, hey, have you, have you forgiven them? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, I mean, but seriously, like, it's your brother. It's your sister. Like, if you're, you're saying your relationship with them has been strained for decades because of one simple act of unforgiveness? I don't know about you, but that's, that seems crazy. But that's the world we live in. I, I think one of the things we have to realize is that we are people who do not like to deal in forgiveness because forgiveness is hard. It's tough. But one of the things we need to understand is that forgiveness, if you call yourself a believer, forgiveness is simply part of the uniform that we put on as Christians. You'll turn to Colossians 3. I'll show you what I mean. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Bearing with one another. And if, and this word if, it actually means kind of when. And so when someone has a complaint against someone else, forgiving each other. But it doesn't stop there. It says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the Christian puts on compassionate hearts. The Christian puts on humility and patience. And even, even when we have good reasons to be upset with someone, even when they sin against us in a way that everyone would agree that person is wrong, we put on forgiveness. And in the exact same way that Romans 5.8 teaches us, we forgive like Jesus forgave Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in the way that Christ died for us as sinners who had never taken a step for, towards him, never taken a step towards forgiveness, never even initiated that relationship,
Christ died for us. And so the, the, the thing that Christians are challenged to do is take that first step in forgiveness. Now when it comes to Christ dying for us before we ever did anything, I want to take like just a, a side right now. If, if you're somebody in this room right now, and, and you're kind of wrestling with this whole Christianity, wrestling with whether or not Jesus loves you, I just want to make this very, very, very clear. Christians believe, and then what, what Christians take hope in and find comfort is despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, despite the fact that Jesus knows everything awful we've ever done, He still initiates forgiveness. He was still willing to go to the cross for us. And so if you're someone in here tonight who says, I, I'm just not good enough, there's no way that Jesus could ever love me, Understand, all Christians of all time have been in a place where it wasn't what they did that earned Jesus' love. It was Jesus' love that was given freedom. So I want to step back in to tonight. Now, as the Lord has forgiven, we must forgive. And so as the Lord took the first step in forgiveness, we as believers, we as people who love relationships with one another, one another must do everything possible in our own power to enable forgiveness to flow for someone else. Now there are some people in this room, some people you know who are like naturally peacemakers. And so anytime like your group of friends has an argument or anything like that, they're the ones, guys, hey, can't we just can't we just all get along? You know? And they're the ones who typically get taken advantage of when it comes to like a group vote on where you go out to eat because they like, oh, okay, fine, we can just go wherever. So my son Noah, I'm gonna say he's three years old and he's the peacemaker in our family. So there's an argument about who gets what or anything like that. Um, he'll do everything in his power to make sure to make sure that everyone else is happy. Now the problem for him is that even when he bends over backwards to make sure that everybody else is taken care of, they don't always respond in kind. And, and, and by that, like they're completely content to let him give away his stuff and then never reciprocate or never show any sort of love. And maybe this is, is what happens to some of us. Like we, we try to be those peacemakers, but no matter what happens, we try to bring peace, and people that are in there just aren't sorry. Like we seek forgiveness, we take those first steps, we try to initiate, and the people we run into, they're like, I don't care. Like, I'll just do it again. And so we find people, and it, and it, it just makes us ask this question, what do I do? And what would you do? What do you do if you've been wrong, and you approach that person, and they're just not sorry? Do I, do I just cut them out of my life? Or, like, if they're going to stay in my life, do I just try to make them as miserable as possible? And, like, we know. It's neither. And we don't cut those people out, but we also don't try to make them miserable. If you'll turn to Romans 12, 17, this is an incredibly challenging passage. But it's one that cuts to the core of what we're called to be. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if you're going to hear any verse tonight, okay, and like take a personal challenge home, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Do everything in your power. And understand that we have limited power. We have limited influence, but do everything that's in your power, in your control, to live at peace with others. Now, there may be situations where peace just isn't possible. You've done everything on your end, and yet the other person just wants to stay angry. They want to keep bringing the drama, the hard work. But the work that is worth it is to overcome evil with good. When your enemy, that person who just doesn't want to have a good relationship with you, is in need, you meet that need. It's crazy. It's crazy to think that we would meet the needs of our enemies, but it's exactly what Jesus did. Now let's, let's go forward in this conversation about forgiveness. Where we run into the people that just don't want to be forgiven. But what about the person who sins against you? They may have lied. They may have, have like uh, taken your boyfriend or stolen from you. Whatever it is. And then they come up to you. Like truly sorry. And they look into your eyes and say, Hey, I, my heart... My heart's broken with what I did to you. I am, I am so sorry. I, I can't imagine that I would ever be in a situation where I would do that to you. That is just, I was awful. I can't believe I stole him from you or stole him. Like, I, it's awful. I am so, so sorry. And we know that when somebody comes to us and they, they truly are repentant, we forget. Right? That's, a, that's the most common scenario in which we forget. But what if? What if? And no one, no one would ever do this to you, or nobody in this room, probably. But what if that person who maybe decided to talk about you behind your back, like, did it the first time, and came and said they're sorry, and then like a few weeks later, they did it again. And they still, they come to you, and like you look at it, and it's like everything about them says they're actually sorry, but they did it a second time. And then a few weeks go by, and you've forgiven them. And then, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's the, friend, the friends they hang out with. Maybe it's something in their life. Whatever it is, but it kind of puts them in a position where they're, they're talking about you again. And so the question is, how many times must we forgive? Now, one of the really cool things about the Bible, the Bible has answers for things. And one of the really cool things about Jesus is Jesus is typically the one in the Bible who's giving us those answers. So Luke 17 answers us this question very plainly. Jesus says this, pay attention. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Surely there must be a limit to the number of times I forgive someone. Certainly Jesus doesn't really want me to actually forgive somebody every single time does. When the people you love sin against you, when the people that you're friends with, the people that, that you trust sin against you, they're confronted with that sin and they repent and they ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is the response every single time. And so throughout Scripture we see Jesus place this incredible emphasis, this incredible um, focus on the place of forgiveness in our lives, so much so that when, when we think about how we use our time and our time is limited, well, we have to include forgiveness in the equation. And to do so, we have to become fluent in the language of forgiveness. We've got to be people who are fluent in the language of forgiveness. Now, this is incredibly difficult, because when you speak the words of forgiveness, it demands humility. And so I want you to think about this. So if you're confronting somebody who sins against you, somebody who did you wrong, somebody who messed up and hurt you, 
Like, here are some of the things that may be difficult for you to say. I'm going to read these to make sure they come across right. Okay. If you're like me, real fast, these are, these are phrases that are very hard. But maybe you can say it. You know, you really hurt. And I think, guys, you can really resonate with me on this. Like, it's hard. It is hard to look at somebody. You, you hurt me when you did that or said that. Or, I, you know, honestly, I feel like you just don't care about me. Like, I wanted you to be there and you weren't there. And, and honestly, when that happens, I feel like you just don't care. I feel like I'm nothing to you. And, and the reason I, 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 I want you to hear these phrases is because I think one of the times when we're seeking forgiveness from others or we're asking others to, to recognize that they need to be forgiven... We kind of shy away from using these types of phrases because we'd rather just bottle it up, rather keep it in. But here's the end result of that. When you don't take the first step in forgiveness, years can go by. And I, I can almost guarantee that there's some upperclassmen in high school right now in this room who remember friends they had in elementary or middle school and they're not friends anymore because they were not willing to say, you hurt me. And instead the friendship dissolves and it goes away. But the problem when friendships dissolve, the problem when relationships are broken, is our ability to influence others for the sake of the gospel is broken when relationships are broken. Now here's the other side of, of forgiveness fluency that we need to become fluent in. If you are, are the person who messed up, and I think this is equally hard for some people, if you're the person who messed up, you may have to say things like, hey, I just want to, I don't put this out there, like, things have been really awkward since I... And then you just fill in the blank with whatever you did wrong. But one of the hardest things for us to do is to say, I really messed up. We don't like doing that. We don't like saying that. Like, we would much rather be quiet about it. And here's, here's kind of the sly way that people try to do it. Like, you know, there's like tension or fighting in between you. And then you try to act as if nothing happened. It's like it's been awkward silence for a few days or whatever, and then you get to that same place where you're going to see that person again. It's like, oh, hey, how are you? And it's like, are they going to receive the high five? Are they going like, to hit me in the face when I do that high five? I don't know what it is. But it's just that awkward silence. I'm, I'm telling you, if you want to reconcile relationships, if you want to mend the damage that's done when forgiveness is needed, you need to take that first step. So here's the challenge. We're going to wrap up. Simple challenge for you to pray about, for you to think about, and then for you to act on. Time is short. Time is short. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Time is short, whether you know it or not. Time is short. Seek forgiveness now. Time is short. Seek forgiveness now. And so if you need to ask forgiveness from someone, if you need to ask forgiveness from someone, do it now. This is very humbling. No one likes to admit their faults. No one likes to admit they're wrong. But I'm telling you, your relationship with your mom or your dad, your relationship with your brother or sister, your relationship with your friends, your relationship with your family, your relationship with teachers, coaches, whatever it is, your relationships with people in this world is worth being humble enough to say, I'm sorry and I was wrong. If you need to seek forgiveness, do it now. Now, if you need to forgive somebody who's already asked forgiveness, you need to act on it. Because some of us, what we like to do is we, we like to withhold forgiveness from people because we're still angry. 
And so it's like that person apologizes, they said they're sorry, but we're still going to hold it over their head because it gives us a sense of power, this control of the situation. Because our hearts haven't healed yet, and so we don't want that relationship to heal. And so my challenge to you is this. If you're somebody who has had somebody has said, I'm sorry, but you're just not letting go yet, I want to encourage you to act on that and do your part letting that go. And then finally, if you need to forgive someone who will never ask you for forgiveness. There are people in your life who, who you need to grant forgiveness. They've done something wrong to you, and either they haven't asked, or you look at the situation and say, this person will never, ever, ever ask me for forgiveness. I'm going to encourage you to do your part. Which, which means as far as it is possible to you, live at peace with everything. Some people simply don't know they hurt you. Some people may just need to be told, hey, you don't, you don't know this, but you hurt me. And still others that are just obstinate or they just don't care or whatever, you just have to do your part of humbling yourself and overcoming evil with good. My challenge for some of you in this category is to surprise me with the amount of love you pour out for the sake of others. Seeking forgiveness demands much of you. In fact, it's one of the hardest things in life. That's why so many people put it off until the very end. And even on their deathbed, they may not get around to it. But here's my hope for you and my hope for the student ministry in this church, your families, this community, is that we be people who are so committed to the other people around us. We be people who love so deeply that we would be willing to humble ourselves for the sake of healed relationships. Time is short. I encourage you to seek forgiveness now. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the one who initiated forgiveness in our hearts and in our lives. And, and I, I just ask, Father, that if, if there was an opportunity for someone in this room who doesn't know you to start a relationship with you, I pray that you would put in their life people who can talk with them, even give them the courage to come talk with me or other adults in this room that can give them the answers about what it means to follow Jesus. And so, Father, when 